Hey everybody, Jeff here from Startup Sack with another episode of the Sacramento Startups Podcast. A couple of weeks ago, we took Startup Sack Happy Hour on a road trip to Davis, where our guest entrepreneur for our founder AMA was John Bissell, co-founder of Origin Materials. Once again, we captured that AMA session so we could share it with the broader startup community. We pick up with John relating his background and the origin story of Origin Materials. Take a listen. What Origin Materials does is it, it converts lignocellulose materials, which are like wood chips and agricultural residues and waste corrugated cardboard and paper, into chemical intermediates, um, two particular chem- chemical intermediates that we care about. Um, and then we take those and we can make a lot of different materials out of those. The thing that we talk about the most, the product line we talk about the most, is uh, bio-based PET. So um, we we have two major strategic partners for bio-based PET. Those are Nestle and Danone. Um, they're looking to use that in, and we have contracts for them to use that in their um, their water bottles, specifically Evian uh, water um, Vitel, and Vitel, which you guys may or may not be aware of because it's a European brand. Um, we're building our first manufacturing facility right now. We're building it in Canada. Um, it's a $25 million facility that takes about two years to build. We're about halfway through it, so we're right in the thick of things. Um, we've raised about $100 million in total thus far, and we've been around for about a decade. And I was a chemical engineering grad out of UC Davis, and I started the company almost straight out of Davis. So I think I worked at nine months at, uh, at Aerojet as a chemical engineer, but was functionally incubating this company the whole time. So I don't know if that really counts. Um, so with that, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll open it up for questions. Come on. Really? <laughs> okay, that's it. Okay. So uh, before you launched the company, did you think that you wanted to be the founder of a company, or were you mostly interested in research? Uh, so kind of neither, to be honest with you. Um, so we, I and my co-founder started the company because we, we were participating in some undergraduate research and we won an award through the US EPA called the, the P3 Award, the People, Prosperity, and the Planet Award, which was an $85,000 grant slash award um, that, that had a little bit of fanfare behind it, which was kind of fun. But uh, on the way back from that, we sort of fell into the idea of starting a company around it because after having won, we were really high on the idea that we just won this national award, and we're all talking on the the um, platform at the um, uh, at the on the metro on, in DC on the way back, and um, and we said, well, what what do we what do we do next? Do we have more research that we want to do? Um, do we want to? just sort of write it off and give it to some grad students and be done and go go get jobs. And what we thought was, well, we're from California. I mean, of course what somebody does is start a company as a result of winning anything anything at all. And that was why we started, really. Now we ended up enjoying it and it's it's been a it's been a life changing experience for obvious reasons. But um, but we didn't really have some sort of fantastic vision of I want to be a founder, I want to start a company, or even particularly that I want to do research. It was much more of a local optimization of what's the best possible thing that I can do as a result of this this recent award that we won. Yeah. So your intellectual property probably came from UC Davis. So um, that's how a, did you handle that? Yeah. So that was a, a little bit more complicated story. So we. Um, the research that we were doing originally was unpatented at that point. Um, okay. So, and there wasn't really actually in the industrial technology space, patents are much less strong than they are in biopharmaceuticals or new molecules or something like that. So, so having really strong patents is one not really possible and not feasible and not necessarily worthwhile. Um, so we have we now at this point have a patent portfolio of about fifty patent families, something in that range. So we have patented. We have some of it's around new products and materials, some of it's around processes. But at the time, what we did is we took the research. And we said, look, we think we can develop process technology around this. We don't need to file a bunch of patents around it. Um, and as a result, you don't have to negotiate with the universities because there is no intellectual property from that perspective, right? There's no licensing to be done. Later on, we actually ended up um, identifying some other technology at the university that had been patented that we were attracted to. We took that and we ended up negotiating a license with the university. But it was just a straight-up license. Hi. People in the startup community talk about how from the initial idea and initial business model to the one that you actually turn into a business and sell to someone, there could be lots of twists and turns and changes. Was that true for you guys? And, and if so, what are, the, what are the big takeaways yeah. on how to come through that phase? Did he plant that question with you? I did not. <laughs> so we were, we were just talking about that actually earlier. Um, I, so we have a concept that I stole from Mark Andreessen on that, which is called the idea maze. 
And we find that incredibly helpful to think about sort of the process of evolving a business model and a technology and applications and customers and all that sorts of what does your team look like? What are your core, core principles and what are not? Um, and that, that concept of the idea maze is that you're, you, you enter from one end and you can, at, at various points, you may be going in a completely in the opposite direction from where you end up. And that's okay because that was the only way to negotiate your way through the logic of the maze. So for us, that had um, there were there were two changes in sort of technology that was that we were focused on, but there were an enormous number of changes in, in business model. You know, is it a is it a licensing model? Is it a build own operate model? Is it a build own don't operate model for our manufacturing facilities? Should we be involved in the downstream development of applications? Um, what should the intermediate or the point of sale or the, the article of commerce be for all of these different things? Um, so that was, there were lots of changes and there continue to be. I mean, we, we have, now we're a little bit better at earmarking that that's a decision we have to make as opposed to trying to make the decision early and then flipping later. Um, but it's, it's absolutely something that, um, that we've spent a lot of time doing. And, and the comment that I was making earlier is that anybody that makes it look like it was a really straightforward path from start to finish um, is probably either not critically evaluating their, their business and their technology and their process or they're lying to you, or to themselves, right? Because it's never that straightforward over the course of a half decade or a decade. When you're in it, it can be discouraging. How do you, how do you manage how do you, that? How do you say that? I think, so the idea maze concept was helpful for us because it made it less discouraging, right? <clears throat> Understanding that you have to navigate your way through this process was incredibly important. Before that, it's like I, everybody says, everybody says I have a fundamental insight and then I execute on that insight, and that's bullshit. And, and until you realize that that's bullshit, um, you're holding yourself to that standard and that's incredibly anxiety inducing. Um, but that was why the idea maze concept was useful for us or for me was because it lets it, it makes it okay and in fact natural and a part of the process to be flipping around every once in a while and really not know where you're going as you navigate your way through it. What would be the one piece of advice you would give for somebody starting their journey? Yeah. So I, yeah, my opinion on what that one piece of advice is changes sort of month by month, depending on where my head is. Um, but I would say um, um, endurance is one of the, one of the critical features. Um, but I don't think that's, so people often talk about like it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Um, that's true, but I don't think it really gets at the, at the heart of the issue, which is that it's endurance not just to um, to sort of weather the storm of other people's criticism and the hard parts and all those sorts of things and sort of keep to the path, which I don't think is right. Um, it's the, I think that the endurance comes from remaining vulnerable um, so that you can hear other ideas and criticism and whatever it is and actually genuinely incorporate that into your thinking and weigh legitimately every time, and that's exhausting. And doing that for 10 years is... A hell of an activity, um, and I think that's where the endurance comes from. Because if you can really do that and genuinely invest time thinking about um, what's worthwhile to incorporate and what's not, and what was what was a real criticism and what wasn't, then you're going to end up on the other side as a person with the skills required and probably the business experience to really address a lot of those things. But it's just incredibly difficult to maintain that level of vulnerability. It's, much more tempting to, to sort of stiff arm ideas as they come in or criticism um, or to just accept everything and get whipped around all the time, right? And those, those people fail so quickly, it usually doesn't, it's irrelevant, but... So aside from the monetary award you guys want, can you talk about your experience with your first round of funding? What, who were they? How did you find them? That relationship? Yeah. Was that experience yeah, so I took my, what was theoretically sort of my graduate school money. So my, my I came from a um, family that almost entirely went to med school. So I'm the black sheep of didn't go to med school. So I took that money and that was what I ended up investing in the company to sort of get it off the ground. But that was, you know, that went away in the first six months or something like that, along with the award, which took like 60 days to spend. Um, and, uh, and so the first real round of financing was... Um, um, first, a couple of local um, business owners in, in this greater Sacramento area who wrote, you know, something like seven hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of checks, and then we used that as a convertible note that we rolled into a Series A round that was about three point six million dollars. Um, that one was hard to close. The, the local um, business owners with the convertible note that was going to roll into the Series A, 
was um, more, I, don't, I think it, it could have been hard, but for us it was pretty serendipitous. We almost sort of backed into it. Um, they just showed up and, and literally wrote a check in the parking lot. Um, which was like at the right time. It was all it was just the way it's supposed to it's supposed to go in the storybook. Um, the Series A round was not like that. Um, we I probably took 200 meetings over the course of six or eight months, and uh, started with a network of nothing, um, and had to build up the network that was required to get to the people that mattered and could write checks. And it took um, it was just it was again it was exhausting. It was exciting, but it was exhausting. So. It was out of the Bay Area, um, and it was a family office that ended up writing the check. And they um, they're have been involved in industrial manufacturing of, of a variety of different materials for probably 70 years. Um, so they were, like, exactly the right people for us and the right investor. But, um, but it, was, it was a shit show trying to find them. Um, and and the, the fun part is that at the end of the whole thing, the way that I found them is they sent me a cold email based on something that they had seen somewhere. So they sent me a cold email. I, ha- I wasn't even going to respond to it. I took the meeting in San Francisco because it was next to one of my other meetings. So I, I go up. It's like the 25th floor of one of the buildings on, on um, Sansom. I walk in. There's, there are no lights on the floor. It's completely cleared. There's a, there's a miscellaneous office on the other side of it. Now, it turned out they were, they were changing over some of their office stuff, and he happened to be sort of pushed into the desk. But so I, I walk in there, and there's a guy who's like 6'5", um, hasn't showered in two days, ratty hair, has like pressed French cuff white shirt with like ratty sneakers and like grease-covered jeans and a jacket on and a, baseball, a backwards baseball cap. And um, I was, he has, now, now what I know now is that he has three kids, he likes to work on cars, he really doesn't give a, give a shit about his parents and all that kind of stuff. But, but at the time, I'm like, what am I doing here? I mean, how could this possibly be the right, oh, good use of my time? They ended up writing the whole check, the whole thing. <laughs> so. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about what it means to take capital into your company in terms of, you know, as a board member and CEO and founder? What kind of obligations do you take on? Oh, yeah, that's that's an interesting. I like that question. I haven't gotten that question before. Um, so, uh, so for me, what, what? So there's the fiduciary obligations, right? That's one thing. And and your your financing documents end up structuring a lot of your. You know, you can't go sell the company right away for less than money than you just had invested in you. There's a, there's a bunch of sort of practical obligations um, around that, but. And there's the fiduciary one, which is legal. But for me, there was a completely different set of obligations, which is, you know, these guys came in and bet on me and and my team, who was not worth betting on by on paper at the time, right? And um, and they backed us off of very little data, um, and and so I I still feel a very deep personal sense of of obligation to deliver for them. Um, and that was what we, we um, I guess you could say, were sort of um, harnessed with, right, at the time. I think that it, in the same way that having, like, family or something of something like that investing amplifies the, the downside, right, because it makes you much more afraid than you would be just for yourself. Um, at least for me, that's what it did. But I think it also, um, it provides a driving force that you might not otherwise have. Uh, because you can no longer quit and have it just be you, right? There's somebody else that, that chose to take a risk on you, and that can force you through the really tough times to figure it out. Um, and so I think that was that was probably the most material thing outside of the sort of standard legal obligations. Yep. So what are some of the challenges or hurdles or roadblocks that you faced being a startup investor and what could we do as a community and as a region? Yeah, so there, there are two layers of things, I think, and this is something I've thought about and talked to at different facets of it uh, quite a bit around the community generally. But, um, but I think there are two sort of layers of things. Um, one is the sort of general resources and facilities and all that kind of stuff. That seems to get, that's being built up. Um, one of the critical ones is lab space, right? So we were just talking about the incubator that's relatively new, or new by my standards. Um, but being able to spend not that much money, so I think that what is it, three hundred bucks a month or something, to get a, a bench where you have common shared access to analytical equipment, that's a huge deal. I mean, we spent one hundred fifty thousand dollars to build out a lab 
and get some of the really basic equipment right off the get-go. And that was, I mean, that's really capital intensive. And that and we did it very cheaply relative to most folks in town, right? So that was that's a removing that activation hurdle is a big deal. Um, the, the second piece that I think is, now there was actually, there were pretty good uh, facilities for hooking us up with lawyers and accountants and all those kind of people. So that was not so bad. Um, but what what I still think is lacking in in the greater Sacramento area, let's call it, or greater Davis area, um, is that the um, I don't think you have the entrepreneurs that won um, there and present necessarily for the up and coming entrepreneurs. Um, you have, you have, they exist, right? There are, there are a few of those sort of entrepreneurs that have won and have been through the war and made it to the other side. They're around. They weren't that accessible. I mean, they are to me now, um, but they weren't to me when I was starting out. Um, and I think they also, um, they don't have a real, there's not a tight community around that. And I think that's the nidus that you need to teach people how to to fight their way through to scale um, and that's a that's a hard thing um, you know I, not that I've made it all the way to the other side but I, I try to sort of make myself available um, but it's hard right there aren't really good common ways to do that and there isn't a good usually the network is used as a filtration mechanism for the people who are really serious you know you, you I, I'm not going to field 500 emails or something like that. Just looking, trying to fi- figure out who's who's sort of serious about what they're doing and who isn't. The way that it works in the valley is you've got a really broad network with um, good good filters and good amplifiers for the people who are serious about things, right? And that gets to the right mentors so that they can help them actually work their way through the the problems of starting a company. We don't really have that here, um, and I think that we need it. I think that would make a really big difference. Expanding on that last point, you're obviously a smart guy because you're used to this threat. <laughs> well, who did you lean on as you were going through an nascent ecosystem to provide you guidance and advice on starting your company? Where did yeah. you look for that network? Yeah, so um, so where did I look for? I, I didn't have, so I didn't really have a mentor in the beginning. Um, the After I raised capital, or maybe maybe shortly before I raised capital, I, I um, found a guy who did help. Who is who was not an already already been there done that entrepreneur, but who now is. Um, so he was. We were sort of going through the track at the same time. He considers me a peer. I consider him a mentor. So for whatever that's worth. So he was who sort of helped me figure a lot of this this out. Um, he was not local. He was um, he was actually in the Bay Area, but was largely from Seattle um, and had been a divisional controller for Microsoft, and then came down here and was a CFO for a couple different startup companies that had been relatively successful. Um, so that was where I got it, and then my the other real mentor for me was my um, investor, the guy that I talked, the, the guy who closed my Series A. So he he was um, I didn't know how good he was uh, then, but he's amazing, um, and he helped me steer the right way at the right time. I more, two dozen times in the last ten years, um, and without. I recognize it now because I've seen so many other investors, but I didn't know how good he was then. Um, but he was the other one. Did you get any grant funding, like NSF or anything like that, to help develop your technology? Aside from the $85,000 grant that we got in the beginning, um, we got nothing. And it was largely because we were undergrads. So there was not a good um, sense of, of the entrepreneurial spirit of undergrads at the time and so the SBIRs and STTRs and all that I don't know if those still exist but but yeah okay and um, those were all geared towards um, uh, basically PhDs that had had started one of these um, grant farms right uh, that that serviced the defense industry or they were professors or something like that so they were looking for the, basically the way they screened for this stuff was lore, at this 10 years ago was um, was do you have a CV that's at least as thick as my thumb, right? And if not, then I'm not really going to review your application seriously. Um, so once we got, once we were big enough and had enough critical mass that we could start bringing in those kinds of people to work on our R&D team, suddenly we could get those grants, but then they didn't matter, right? We'd raised $20 million, $25 million at that point. It's We went and got a couple $250,000 grants, but, you know, the, the, the administration cost is higher than the cash that I'm getting from the grant at that point, especially when you take into consideration the fact that it's not it's not directly aligned with what I'm trying to do. I'm sort of tacking my way there off of grants 
and the grants aren't worth it at that point. So for a startup company then, it was very difficult to use grants productively. I'm not sure if that's still true because we, we bailed on the whole idea. Because um, So your, your recent deal, is that like a purchase order or an investment with the bottles? With- Both. So we, we, they're, they're, strategic, they're strategic partners. They invested capital. Um, we also have long-term contracts with them. Um, they're, the contracts are for multiple plants. Very, you know, these are these are very long-term contracts for us anyway. Um, but they're both. So, what's the difference between taking money from a VC or taking money from a family corporate, corporate VC? So, we didn't take money from a corporate VC. Actually, um, ours was driven entirely by the purchasing departments, uh, which is better. So, so corporate VCs usually act, uh, this is not true for all of them, right? Com- all companies can be different. But most corporate VCs act as a, um, as a service provider to the business. And, and that has implications in the way that the decisions are made. So the, something we ran head, headlong into and absolutely like face-planted coming off the back of it was um, leading into corporate VCs as though they're going to be the originator of a transaction. Um, they're not. They, 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 they will present themselves that way. They'll, they'll sort of shop you through the business, but both for reasons of tenure. So the people who end up as in the VC office for a corporate VC typically don't have the kind of clout that they need inside the organization, right? They're like a, they're like three layers down from the business, business unit manager. Like that guy's not going to tell me, maybe, maybe he's got a shot by influencing my thinking on it to, to decide that I'm going to approve a check being written for that startup. But that's not really the way that goes. The way it goes is having a business unit manager get excited about what you're doing and then tell the corporate VC to go execute whatever transaction makes my life easy. Um, so, so even though they go, the corporate VC sit in Silicon Valley, and there's some exceptions, for example, like, um, who are the guys that uh, invest in A1? Motorola, I think it is, or something like that. They're, yeah, there, there are a couple that are exceptions here that actually operate like a real VC office, but that's the that's the exception, not the rule. But those guys will sit down on Sand Hill, and they'll have like a two-man shop on Sand Hill Road. They don't operate like a standard VC on Sand Hill. They're very different. Um, so you're saying you want to go and influence the, the purchase department or the, or the department that you're yeah. truly doing a strategic partnership yeah. Show the guy that you're actually going to add value to the business, and whoever the relevant person is there, get him to call the corporate VC. And at that point, the VC is just an order taker, right? They say they need 20 million bucks. If you give them 20 million bucks, you they save me 500 million dollars over the course of three years. Give them 20 million dollars, and then it just happens. It's much more straightforward. So, two part question. So, first one is. Is there some kind of decision or action you guys took and you will, oh, I think we just screwed up? Uh, have we ever fucked up? Yeah. <laughs> okay, and then the second part, was there a point where you realized, I think we are going late? No, I still don't feel that way. <laughs> um, so, okay, so more, more complete answers. Yeah, so there are plenty of times where we really fucked up. Um, I mean, one was uh, in 2011, we, were, um, we, we had a, a deal on the hook. Well, we thought we had a deal on the hook um, that was for 20, just over $20 million. And it was basically the scaling capital we needed. I'm not going to say who it was, but um, but they, they 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 the day we were supposed to close, right? We'd gone through all the diligence, we'd negotiated the documents. They had our our, our account to wire money into, right? I mean, it was think docs hadn't been executed, but it was about as far close as you can get. Aside from that, um, I got a call. Hey, I don't think we're going to be able to do it. It's not going to work. Um, and that's after like, you know, three or four months of negotiation and sorting all this stuff out. That was, um, and we had, the, the fuck up was that we had bet our resources on that. So we had started scaling into that capital because there's, the, you know, your timeline is often tight, right? So we'd started scaling into that capital. Um, and, and it was, I mean, so I often think about that decision, like, should you scale into in anticipation of something or do you wait for it to happen and then scale after? And there's a, there can be like years of delay um, in the time difference between those two different decisions. And um, I often think about it as like turning into a skid. So the question is, sometimes you turn into the skid and that's the right decision. 
And sometimes the right decision was to pump the brakes. And the art is figuring out when, when, which one is the right thing to do at the right time. And we definitely fucked that one up. We that was we we went straight into the wall on that, and and had to make a whole bunch of different uh, adjustments as a result. In fact, we're probably you know that probably cost us three years. That um, so that was a big fuck up. Uh, and then what was your what was your other one? Well, I think you kind of answered it, but it was after ten years. Oh, do we ever feel like we we're feel we're like, there? Oh, yeah, now. Now I I I now have a carefully tuned and honed sense of we're gonna die next week if I don't do it. Right. <laughs> it's carefully cultivated. Yep. So you're you're talking about how um, you started right after undergrad, and the two of us are still undergrads. Yep. Um, we're just like majors and Yeah. We went to the, at the time it was called the Green Tech Entrepreneurship Academy, but the Entrepreneurship Academies that are run through the GSM, Nikki's involved in those, um, is uh, those, that was instrumental. So they actually fished us out of the like undergraduate pool as a result of this, this thing, this award that we'd won and said, you guys should come to our program. And we were, I think, the only undergrads that went that year. It was a different, the program was structured a little bit differently, so it was more of a boot camp. Um, so it was like six days, five, six days, and it was 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. every day. And it was like, you know, we, I mean, we took it unbelievably seriously. I think they're, they're probably grad students that go to that. In fact, I know because I end up talking to them on the other end of it that there are grad students that go there that are sort of like, ah, this is cool, it's just another class, I'm just gonna sort of skip my way through it. We did not treat it that way at all. We were deadly fucking serious, and um, and we learned a lot. I would say, actually, a lot of the stuff that we learned, Andy taught most of it, Andy Hargadon taught most of it that year, because it was one of the first ones. I don't I don't think he does that so much anymore, but I don't I don't know. But he was like, he he taught probably 80% of the of the individual modules for that um, that week. And um, we still have in the company a huge number of our precepts and assumptions that are built off of Andy's ideas. We thought everybody thought, thought that way. And so we every once in a while we'll stumble across one of these where we go out, we, we thought everybody just did it this way and um, or thinks about the world this way. And, and we realize, oh no, oh, that was, that was Andy's thesis on this thing. That's why we think that way because of that program in the very beginning. Um, so that was a that was a spectacular program, but I think it's um, we took it really really seriously. I mean, it was that was that was the thing. Everything started with that. You start, you just have a small team, and then you have some success, and you get a much bigger team. Yeah. You, uh, you have a small team, you wear all the hats, and then at some point that doesn't make sense. How do you figure out? what you're good at yeah. versus the stuff that you shouldn't do and the stuff that you're not good at. Um, it's hard. I, I think, um, so, so I ask myself often, I, I think of it more as like a, a professional development activity as opposed to just a company activity. So I, I find that trying to look at that through the lens of the company is too hard. I, I, can't, I can't actually um, coalesce on a conclusion. Um, so instead, I look at it as what do I need to do and optimize my own ability to add value, and and that incorporates my strengths and my experience, or whatever else, and whatever feedback there is. And so, um, I, and I, I think that everybody should do this, right? Is really spend time evaluating how do you get the right experiences and the right exposure and build the right skills so that you have a genuinely unique ability to create value. Um, in whatever, in some area that matters. And so I always optimized on my own local ability to add value to the stuff that's around me. And then the company, well, I'm lucky, the company ends up shaping around me as a result. And if I, particularly I end up hiring for, if something is a problem and I don't like doing it, I hire for it. Um, usually that works. The, the hard part is when it's not a problem and I like doing it, but I'm spending a bunch of my time on it. Um, and I'm, I've only recently started getting better at flagging that for myself. Because um, when you like doing it, that, doesn't, that still doesn't mean that it's the right thing for you to be spending your time there. And I don't have a good heuristic around that one. I'm still working that one out. <laughs> kind of an add-on question. What was your first like, non-technical, 
management hire like full time? And did you do it too soon or too late? So we hired um, a guy we called a controller who was actually a senior accountant, and um, he was awesome and absolutely critical, um, wicked smart, and he he turned out he's like a he's amazing now. He never he actually never did turn into a controller, um, <laughs> despite us calling him that for years. Um, what he actually is is uh, spectacular at sort of FP&A and strategic analysis. Um, so pricing, techno-economics, um, future planning, all that kind of stuff. Uh, deals, he, he's, he's great as like the back office for complicated deals. So we brought him in and he started with like a desk drawer of bills that we dumped on him. And he now he runs all of our models. So if it's a, any sort of financial model, and he's he's so inculcated in the history of the company and sort of where all the where's every, where everything's hidden that he can link it all into his models and knows how to integrate that all together in a quantitative way. But that was our first hire, and it was the right one. It was absolutely the right one. Was it at the right time? It was at exactly the right time. It was just so that we could execute our. Series A. If we hadn't had him on three months before we were closing our Series A, we wouldn't have had the bandwidth to actually do the close. If we'd had him too much earlier, I'm not sure that... I mean, it probably would have felt good because we weren't accumulating a drawer full of envelopes, but it didn't hurt us. We're still alive. We never got... You know, there's no real problem with it. So obviously, it was late enough. Um, we tried... A, actually, the next, the next hire, which I think is actually a more challenging one to make, I think getting a good office manager is one of the best hires you can make, and they should be an assistant to whoever the busiest and most critical person on your team is. Um, so they should they should form a dual role. And, um, and people think office managers and assistants are luxuries, and they're not. They are so critical, and they're, they're so inexpensive relative to the value that they provide, especially early. And I wish we'd figured that out earlier. We're too late on that one. Now you got too late. <laughs> yeah, I got a couple. <laughs> not just for me, but for my team. Yours is pretty good. Yeah, she's very good. Other questions? Yeah. So you're a chemical engineer by degree, right? Yep. So starting a business, how did you catch up on the business aspects? Did you consult your brand consultants? Did you have to learn on your own? Yeah, it was all trial by fire. Um, and most of it was through the Entrepreneurship Academy was sort of the primer. And that was enough so that you could start to start to sort of understand and incorporate the stuff that, you, that I was hearing. Um, but then... The next was, you know, 50 or 100 VC pitches gets you, I mean, when you do your homework in between, so they, they drill you on a bunch of things that you have no idea what they're even talking about, let alone you don't have a plan that incorporates or accounts for that. You go back, you learn, you build the plan, you figure out how to pass the sniff test at the next meeting. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but that's that's like the critical feedback cycle, um, and that was how I learned almost all this. So. Which, which has some interesting autodidactic uh, implications. Uh, one is that my understanding of finance is extremely deal-oriented and manufacturing-oriented. So I understand, like, esoteric structured asset finance pretty well. If you want me to just read through and tell you what a business is doing based on their financial statements, that's not a fast thing. Like, that, that requires some real serious thinking and, you know, linking things together and all the rest of it because that was never something I needed to be able to do. But, but other weird ends of finance, I know really well. And it's all because of the, the development process. So no, you've already asked a question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you've been doing this for a while yeah. in this ecosystem. So you've seen a lot. Uh, you're aware that other UCs have more robust ecosystems, partly because they've done things differently. If you were to say one thing that you wish 10 years ago had been part of the ecosystem now that would have accelerated you forward, what would it have been? Um, something that, so something that I think is, I'm going to constrain it by something I think was achievable, which is maybe not entirely fair, and I, I apologize to my UC Davis friends. I, I firmly believe that universities should completely abandon, and I'm, I'm going to be a little bit controversial here, I think they should completely abandon trying to own intellectual property. I think it is an absolute clusterfuck. I think it's getting better, but I think, it's, I, I think it, is, it is hard to describe how difficult it is to raise money 
while you're dealing with a with a university in negotiating a license and and it, back then anyway I haven't done one recently it took a year at best to actually negotiate a license it was a mess um, and that was I, I think and I'll tell you that that institutional memory in the professors is is absolutely present so if you go talk to a professor I have to reassure them ad nauseum that we're going to be able to get the licenses out of the university like that that's a deal that can be done they are convinced that you can't do it it's not even worth trying let's not do it let's just not talk about it you know go 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 do what we're doing you know go go reinvent it off-site so that we don't have to and i'll just be arm's length and and not talk about it so that we don't have to worry about it now as a result frankly speaking we don't collaborate with many, um, in fact, none right now, um, UC professors, because, not because there aren't useful things, because I literally cannot convince them to spend and invest the time to come work with us because they don't think that the technology can get out of the university. And I think that's one of the problems. And I would have changed that. And, 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 and Stanford, Stanford did do that historically, right? You just walk across the street with the tech and it's different there. <laughs> Good. Thank you, John. Yeah. Are the original <laughs> founders all still on the team? And no. If not, how did you work through that? So we um, we originally had seven founders, um, which basically was the research the undergraduate research team that won the grant. Um, we uh, we all came back and we thought we were going to start a company, and so the idea was like, great. There's going to be seven of us. That's going to be the core team. As soon as people realized that you weren't going to get paid right away and you could go work somewhere else to make money, five, uh, four people, no, five people vanished. And that was fine. It was amicable, relatively speaking. Um, and then we picked up another guy who was a microbiologist, and that ended up being our three-person team. So two from sort of the original team, and then a, a third founder, a guy named Casey McGrath, um, who we picked up within probably three months or something like that. Um, but that was that was the way that that was. Because worked. it was so early, were there any issues around these other people owned any equity? We we were way above board with all of our contractual relationships early on. So we had Morrison Forrester um, from the get go, um, which was a great decision. Um, there are people who try to do legal stuff on the cheap. I think that's a mistake. Um, I think that if because and it's a scenario based uh, decision, right? So. If, you, if you're successful, you will thank God that you had good legal documents, and the cost of doing it is not that expensive if you're successful. If you're not successful, who cares if you spent money because the money wasn't, you're not, you're not paying it back, and they take that as a business development expense, right? The lawyers know that, you're, that a huge number of these, guys, these companies aren't going to be successful, right? And they'll, they'll, they'll extend you $10,000 or $20,000 or $25,000 of credit to put your documents together, understanding that you're not going to be able to pay it back if you can't get financing, right? So in your original founder agreements, was there some kind of vesting that we have to continue yeah. working and contributing for a certain amount of time? Yeah, well... Uh, Essentially, I, I won't get into the nuanced details of sort of how the mechanics work, but yeah, there was basically there were mechanisms for people to leave without equity and sort of not not permanently disfigure the company's cap table, and which would have made it impossible to raise money downstream. Yeah. Can you talk about the culture of your company as it pertains to age, race, uh, uh, diversity in the early days and has it still the same or has it changed? Yeah. Well, you can tell I'm incredibly diverse, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, we have uh, it. So in the beginning, um, it was two white guys and, a, and an Asian guy. Um, and we were all male for the first probably three years, something like that, aside from the office manager, which was like the most cliche thing you could possibly get. Um, it was... Uh, um, what we realized is as soon as we put a little bit of structure into the organization and it stopped being like um, there's a video game system in the corner on one of the offices, right? Um, we, we diversified almost immediately. It was like instantaneous. So we went from one female employee to 50% of our employees being female, or 60 actually, I think. Like overnight, it felt like. It was probably within a year. And we've stayed about there um, for the last four or five years. So it's, we're, we're right around half female, I think, by numbers but not by um, position in the hierarchy. 
So we have we have a, a predominantly male management team, which is something that we are not happy with, um, and it's sort of turned out that way. We have two female senior executives, um, and we're, you know, I would say that we have a bias, right, um, for for adding additional women to the executive team. Um, so it's definitely something that's been on our mind. Um, we have, uh, in terms of race, we have a pretty well mixed team that's, uh, I would say, sort of representative of the local population. Um, so lots of Latin, lots of Asian or Hispanic, I don't know. Um, um, more Caucasian than you would expect. Um, or, or then when I say diverse, more Caucasian than you'd expect for a diverse team, but actually pretty close to representative of the local community there um, in the greater Sacramento area. We don't have a lot of African Americans. In fact, we have none. Um, so that's something that we're we we use these often as things to ask questions of ourselves. Is there something that we're doing that's that's intentionally screening that or unintentionally screening that out? Rather than um, rather than we need to go hire that one person, right, um, or two or whatever. So so that's a thing. That's a question we're asking ourselves. Um, at our board level, we're entirely male, which is something that we're again not happy with. Um, I tried. I tried to recruit Ellen Coleman, who is the ex CEO of Dupont. Um, she's awesome. Um, unfortunately, she chose to take a board seat at Goldman Sachs over us, so we lost that. <laughs> one. Um, we, we almost got her. Um, She'll regret that. Yeah, she will regret that. I think so. Um, so we got her right hand guy, um, who actually is African American. Now that I think about it, I forgot about that. Um, so, uh, but yeah, so that's diversity. Uh, we, we pay attention to it, and what we've also found is, um, practically speaking, we found that the quality of conversation and decision-making gets a lot better as the diversity level increases. Now, one caveat that I would, I would throw out, and I'm not, I don't have enough data points to know if this is really true, but I'll say that um, early on, you have to make a lot of decisions really fast. And I'd say having different perspectives really early may actually be a bad thing. And that is, that's sort of a logic that's, that's swirling around the industry, and I kind of buy it. Um, I'd be interested in seeing a full, like a real analysis of that. Um, it seems convenient, right? Um, so I'm, I question it just because it feels convenient. Um, as soon as something seems like it lines up too easily with what I'm already doing, then that makes me, that makes me question if it's real. That's like an automatic flag for me. Um, but, uh, but so that's a thing. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I have, uh, go ahead. I have another question, but I'll let someone else ask. Yes. Um, so just to build on that, just last week, I was taking a talk of Google. Taking a what? Google. Oh, sure. Yeah, in Mountain View. And so one of the problems, like the way you were saying, maybe it's the way of thinking or culture or whatever that creates a lack of capacity. Yeah. In their own case, they were just hiring from Stanford. Yeah. And, 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 and because they wanted to make sure people were people, so the only people they know were people from Stanford, and then they realized, whoa, they were just too heavy. They're pulling from an already filtered population. Exactly, and it was almost always male Caucasian. Yeah. So at some point, they had to go to the and say, whoa, this is not going to work. Yeah. And they, at, that, at that point of cultural decision, they started to reach out. Yep. And, and I truly think that helped them today, you know, especially with this kind of culture and the, the, the backslash that we are getting now, if they have not done that. I completely agree. I think that's, I, that's, that is precisely the way I think to think about this stuff is to go, you say, what does our population look like? Does that make sense? Right? Is there a reason? Is there a good reason why it should look like that? And if not... I need to do essentially a root cause analysis to at least explain why it's the way it is currently. And then my experience is that as you do that root cause analysis, you usually run into stuff and you go, I don't want it to be like that. That doesn't, that doesn't feel right. But, but I think that you've got to do that root cause analysis and then that will lead you to all the other stuff, right? So in that case, it's we hire entirely from Stanford, so that's pre-screening our, 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 um, our uh, pool of candidates, right? Yep. Um, how do you think through, um, talking about bonus? Um, so I think advisors are generally much lower value than they um, than they sort of represent, and then people think that they're going to be. I, I 
practically speaking, I think that advisors are sort of like, um, there are definitely exceptions where there's, a, you know, there are people, and I've had exceptions where people add tons of value. Most of the time, that person, you end up like slapping an advisory official, some sort of formal relationship way after they've already convinced you that like like they've saved helped you save your company like three times right and then you're like you know what i should pay you i don't know why i'm not right that's the way that tends to go when it's a really valuable advisor in my experience um consultants can be good um i think the thing with consultants is that you which are closely related to advisors right these are both people with no skin in the game um i think consultants can be good when you're very targeted about the way you use them. And I think that you have to recognize that they don't have any skin in the game, right? They, they may have reputational skin or something like that, but, but there are lots of ways that somebody who's not really part of the team can extract themselves from the failure point of a, of a team. Like, oh, they didn't, they didn't listen to my advice, right? That's why they failed, but I'm still great. Um, and so the fact that somebody who's actually on the team really doesn't have any, the only way they can come out the other side and look like they did something real is if they actually were a member of a team that did something real, right? So they're, they're much more closely aligned with the success of the company and the organization and the team. Um, so that's my view on advisors and consultants broadly. Um, with a board, I think that you, I think it's much more important to not fuck up your board than it is to build a great board. Um, so I think that just avoid, you know, 13-person boards with, you know, eight of the people have no skin in the game in the company, like, that's a recipe for disaster. Um, and, uh, and overly structured boards early on where you, you're, like, limiting the agenda topics so you don't end up talking about the thing that really matters in the company, that's also a recipe for disaster, in my opinion. You've got to have a level of formality that tracks with the level of structure in the company. Um, but I think boards boards are much less. Boards don't drive success until way later in the company, right? Boards boards can kill you. They don't save you. Does that make sense? So manage them appropriately, right? Don't worry about getting the greatest board member in the world. Just don't let the guy who's completely fucking toxic and doesn't know what he's doing. Don't let him on. Right? <laughs> but people screw that up a lot. Other question? Oh, one more. So what are, what are some of your favorite business books you've read? I have three that I think are great. Okay. And they're the only three I think oh, are great. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the hard thing about hard things, I think is spectacular. So if you, the hard thing about hard things, hard things by Ben Horowitz. And um, so that's like, that's the, the what's that? Yeah. The hard thing about hard things by Ben Horowitz. Um, so that's a great book. I think if you're a founder, you should read that book. That book is a more honest um, description of what it's like to be a founder um, than anything that I've ever read. Um, and the people, generally speaking, I find the people who go, you know, that wasn't the, that wasn't my experience. They either got it easier, they didn't take it seriously, right? Um, and I, I, I think of uh, founding a company is one of the, and, and running a company is something that impacts more lives directly than almost anything else that we do in society. You have, I mean, people go, well, I had like 50 employees or whatever else. You took 50 employees and five or 10 or 15 or 20 years of their life, and you were the single largest impact in their quality of life during that period of time. That's a big fucking deal, right? So, so I think that founding a company is something that you should take seriously. I completely agree with Ben Horowitz's approach on this kind of stuff. Um, and I think that he tells it like it is, right? Um, his, his joke is, uh, it's not really a joke. But his, his comment is, um, people say, how'd you sleep when you're a founder? He said, I slept like a baby. I wake up five times a night and I cry the whole time. Um, that's like, it, it's, and it's, it's, it's pretty true, right? Um, um, the, uh, uh, the next one that I recommend is um, Zero to One by Peter Thiel. Um, I think that's great. It's not at all a description of how to run a company. It's a it's a strategy book. Really, man? Okay. Um, the um, it's a book on startup strategy more so than anything else. So, what should you be doing? Not how do you run a successful company. Um, I really recommend that. The third one that I recommend is um, is. Um, 
shit, what's his name? Uh, Andy Groves. Um, he has a couple books. It's not the not only the Paranoids Five. It's um, it's the one on high output management. So high output management by Andy Andy Grove is a spectacular book, and that tells you that's like the operational nuts and bolts of how to run a company well. So Ben Horowitz is the founder experience. Like it tells you what it's like to be a founder and CEO of a startup. Um, uh, Andy Grove is how do you actually operate a company um, at different scales, and um, and then uh, zero to one is. What should a company strategically be targeted at, and how should it go through the steps of developing it? So that's sort of, for me, those are the three major building blocks of being a startup CEO. And and essentially, all the rest, of, despite the fact that I brought a book tonight that I've been reading, all, all the rest of them, I think, are, are a complete waste of time. Uh, what's the one by Andy Grove? High output management. High upper management. High output. High output. Yeah. High output management. Very good. Okay, we have time for one or maybe two more questions. Anybody? Somebody who hasn't asked a question yet? Um, you said the manufacturing is in Canada, sir? The first plant is, yeah. Any reason why it was a particularly good site, so it was it was not about the fact that it's in Canada. Um, for us, it was uh, we wanted the first site to be in North America. Um, that was because of the logistics of being able to travel there and babysit the thing and make sure that it actually starts away. You know, don't add additional complexity to, to the first manufacturing plant. Make sure that it actually works. Um, but aside from that, what we optimized for was the uh, lowest um, installed capex for the plant. So because this is a stepping stone plant. We don't really care that much about the. I mean, the techno-economics of it are sort of nice, but they're going to get washed out by every other plant we ever build. And so that first plant, it doesn't really matter if it's optimized for unit economics. It needed to be optimized for us to spend as little as possible to get the thing built so that we can go on to the next scale. And that site just happened to be a particularly good site. It's actually, um, well, I could talk for a long time about that site, but it's it's the site of one of the old um, uh, allied synthetic rubber plants um, from World War II. And so it has a bunch of interesting aspects around there, but, um, but it has a bunch of industrial infrastructure that we could use that allowed us to spend less money on the plant. So that's why we built it there. Last one. Yeah, so we do we do work with a lot of interns. Um, our theory around actually at every layer of the company is um, interns entry-level work, whether it's technical or not, or whether it's in our core competencies or not, um, we consider every single role is a is a very scarce resource where we can train, develop, and evaluate new personnel so that we can promote them internally later. Um, so, And we treat internships the exact same way. So we take internships incredibly seriously. Um, we really spend, we, we have very defined roles and programs for that, and we spend a lot of time evaluating and training those individuals to see what is their what we call slope. How quickly do they learn new things? Um, and that's that's a huge part of our talent pool. We've probably hired half of our engineers out of um, out of engineering uh, engineering internships, and about half of our R and D staff as well. So, thanks, guys. All right. Beautiful.